this is an emergency transmission from TV Creek. Hello, I'm Graham and this is TV Cream Stays Indoors. In this podcast, I send someone a link to an old TV show and then once they've watched it, I call them up to find out what they made of it. Except this episode is slightly different. Today, I'm talking to two people, Ian Jones and Chris Hughes, who, if you explore the TV Cream podcast feed, you can hear along with me in many episodes of what we just watched. It's a series that's currently resting, but, and I can't stress this enough, there will be more what we just watched in the future. So let's check in firstly with Ian. And Ian, you're safely indoors where? Oh, I am um, in North London, in Harrow, to be precise. And can you hear me, Chris Hughes? (laughs) Where are you holed up? I am currently in leafy TW12 in Hampton Hill. Well, the video link I sent you both was for a show that has two colons in the title. Trouble at the top, Bucks Fizz, Making Your Mind Up. Which originally aired on BBC Two on Thursday the 14th of February 2002 at 9.50pm. Chris, what was your immediate reaction to this choice of viewing? Uh, My immediate reaction, I have to say, was glee. Basically, uh, I knew that we were going to be seeing feuding. Uh, I knew that we were going to be seeing melodrama. Uh, and I knew that we were going to be seeing boy-girl dancing. I, 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 I remember this programme when it first went out and I loved it then. And, and I loved it again now. And Ian, what was your reaction before even revisiting the show? Just the thought of uh, having to watch this. Well, I felt two things at the same time. I felt excited, but also distressed. <laughs> Can you uh, elucidate on the second of those emotions? Well, I've always found this story rather distressing because uh, I loved Buck's Fears when I was a child, when I was growing up, and um, the story of how this fairy tale pop group <laughs> that turned into a, a terrible nightmare with everyone at each other's throats um, has always been one that I found really, really quite upsetting. And so to have to relive it all um, uh, was was something which I you know I, I had to prepare myself for it. I had to, I had to steal myself for this this um, uh, this particular experience, Graham. Okay. Well, I'll try and take a mindful kind of measured tone with you, Ian. Then as you're clearly going to be Thank fought you. throughout. But Chris, Chris, can you briefly talk us through what actually happens in the episode? <laughs> So basically, it chronicles uh, a legal dispute between Bobby G of the original lineup of Bucks. It was fantastic. And David Van Day, originally of Dollar. It was all frilly sort of shirts. And that was good. I loved that because I used to be an actor and I, I actually studied Shakespeare. I wanted to be a Shakespearean actor. Who later joined Bobby's touring version of Bucks. David never played Hamlet. And never had a number one hit. And then left amidst some acrimony and then tried to set up his own Bucks Fizz touring setup. David Van Day requires good looking girls and boys, dynamic performers who can sing and dance. Um, and and so, so, so basically, it's kind of 40 minutes tracing this, this, this very bitter legal battle. Yeah. 
This documentary aired as part of Trouble at the Top, which was a range of business programmes exec produced by Robert Circle. He'd also brought us Troubleshooter, Back to the Floor, Blood on the Carpet and Dangerous Company. And all of them, I think, were absolutely terrific. But Ian, is the story here actually a business tale? That's a good question. Um, it is interesting. Yeah, when, when now you mention that, we don't really get to the legal niceties or nastities is that a word nasties of the whole of the whole uh, drama until sort of two-thirds of the way through um <laughs> the way that this program is put together is we spend a lot of time the majority of time not really on business matters at all and instead it's all about personalities you know the balance of power between bobby and i I could see he wanted to have the upper hand on it. And nobody knew who he was. Clashes of egos. And his ego needs to be fed. I suppose you could argue that the business that we're talking about is the business called Show, which, uh, of course, is like no business we know. <laughs> um, but that, I mean, in, in a strict interpretation of it, um, you don't really get to the sort of well, what you would describe as sort of boardroom battles uh, until very yeah. near the end. In fact, we don't really see, we don't really go into a boardroom at all. It's, um, the nearest we get is a, is a courtroom. But um, yeah, that's quite interesting. It's not, um, it's not really of a piece with, with some of those other programmes that you've mentioned. I wonder if you polled uh, a cross-section of the people who'd just watched that programme, what, what genre of programme they'd just watched. I wonder how many of them would say they'd just watched a business programme I would say it'd be a very, very low percentage. I mean, I think people now would would just label it reality, wouldn't they? Yeah. It's just yeah. it's people bitching about each other yeah. and in a few staged scenes. But Chris, um, Robert Thurkle, he really did have a, a kind of a wonderful reign on BBC Two in the early noughties with all these franchise shows. <laughs> Now, what, what was the driver for that, do you think? So this is kind of around the time that Greg Dyke uh, became Director General of BBC. And I remember one of his sort of mission statement was that he wanted uh, business to be more uh, broadly represented on the BBC. Um, and so he sort of brought in Jeff Randall as, as the BBC's business editor. Um, and I, I, th I think Robert Thurkle's uh, sort of suite of programmes kind of predated Greg Dyke, but certainly by the time we're talking about here, 2002, he did have this kind of portfolio of back to the floor. Blood on carpet. And trouble at the top. And certainly there was a period where one or other of those seemed to be running at any one time on, on BBC Two. When people talk about business on TV, certainly in the 90s, you had this kind of notion of, oh, they're going to be telling us about the Dow Jones index or whatever. But what Robert Thurkle did brilliantly was to just kind of uh, home in on personalities and clashes and conflict and drama. I remember there's a brilliant trouble at the top about uh, Derek Hatton trying to become a phone-in presenter on Century Radio. Call now on 0161 400 0000 for the Dexy debate on Century 105. 
I mean, essentially, that was a documentary about the growth of commercial radio in the UK. This is the biggest licence the radio authority has ever given. But if you just did a straight documentary about the growth of commercial radio in the UK, you know, about, about 50 people would watch it. But if you frame it as a drama or, you know, in this case, a comedy drama, about Derek Hatton trying to become a DJ, then then people will watch it. And it's a weird legacy of the show, isn't it? That, for example, the the, the musical Kinky Boots actually <laughs> came out of a Robert Thurkle uh, profile of, of a gentleman who's trying to turn his business around, so he started making leatherware. Yeah, you can't really say that about the money programme, can you? <laughs> um, you were talking there, Chris, about the fact that Robert Thurkle had tapped in this idea of business is about personalities. Um, and I wonder, though, in this episode, it's narrated by Jim Carter, and it's narrated in a very exaggeratedly dramatic fashion. The feud raged from Butlins to the Falklands and rose all the way to the High Court as even a judge was asked to make up his mind who owned Buck's Fizz. It is. What's going on here? Has it tipped too far now in this pursuit of quirky personality? I think very possibly it has. There are, there are a lot of kind of hallmarks that you that you notice watching this programme again 18 years on. You've got the booming Jim Carter voiceover. You've got the very melodramatic soundtrack. There's, there's a lot of Michael Nyman kind of cues in there. There's, there's kind of crime watch style reconstructions of sort of meetings and showdowns between Bobby G and David Van Dyke. We started discussing how we would work together, picking all the material. I think you're right. Looking at it now, it is quite hammy, isn't it? Well, actually, I was wondering as I watched it whether some of those devices, some of those tricks were new at the time. They seem quite old and hammy now, but the idea of uh, restaging key moments and showdowns in that sort of slightly camcorder sort of security camera style as if as if we're actually there and we see them in a service station on the m6 or we're there with them waiting to go out on stage whether that was quite uh, groundbreaking at the time having heard you say that you know i wonder whether that is that these devices are due to the sort of the alacrity of the personality uh, in the programme to get involved. You, you can imagine the production team feeding off kind of the, the sort of enmity between between David Van Day and Bobby Jean and sort of say, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could sort of get you kind of uh, reenacting a, a showdown at a motorway service station and you know that both of them would do it, which is something that maybe, you know, they wouldn't have got with with a slightly more sort of conventional Uh, edition of Trouble at the Top. I think also um, the techniques that they're using, they are nothing new in themselves, but it's probably having it bolted onto things like something as pedestrian as a meeting at M6 services and, you know, throwing the full weight of a reconstruction with with dramatic music behind it. That's a novelty in a way, isn't it? Yes, and also uh, the thing that makes it even more potent is the fact that is is the element of um, complicity between... between the programme makers and our two stars, that they are willing mm. to indulge in this kind of um, <laughs> silly reconstruction behaviour and, and will preen themselves and, and, and pose in ridiculous places and be willing to get them be filmed skimming stones in a moody way <laughs> on the beach. David Van Day was planning a surprise comeback or sitting, playing a, a, a guitar, sort of plaintively on, on, the, <laughs> on the carpet of their living room. 
I was a bit sort of scared, I suppose, to some degree, that, that I could sort of carry this forward with as much credibility. It's quite extraordinary, <laughs> but then I suppose that then, given the people we're dealing with here, then maybe it isn't such a surprise. I wonder if the production team basically were able to play one off against the other. So they would go to, to Bobby and say, oh, we've got some <laughs> smashing stuff with David. He was skimming <laughs> stones for us. He did. He went to the library. Yeah. And so Bobby's like, oh, God, OK, yeah. well, you know, I've really got a match up. To this. Of course. But, well, we see we also see uh, Bobby putting a golf ball into a hole as if to symbolise success. You know, I've 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 got a hole in one <laughs> over David Van Dyke. We've mentioned the music in this, um, and it really plays into this kind of mood of pastiche. But there's there's a really sort of crappy tinny version of the Terminator Two theme. Another eighties blonde who'd made his name with rival group Dollar. Because he'd upset me, I was going to put a bit of fear into him. Which the reasons for that become apparent a little later on in the show. The best way to describe this is if you've ever seen Terminator. Two is that every time you think that this thing is dead, <laughs> it keeps getting back up, or a yep. bit of it gets back up. But I wonder if there's some editorial misjudgment here, Ian, because they even pour on the kitsch music when they're talking about the group's near-fatal coach crash in 1984. Bobby's co-star, Mike Nolan, nearly died in a terrible coach crash. As if, you know, that's more grist for the mill. Let's have a laugh about that as well. Is it fair for the show to do that? Well, to be honest, Graham, it didn't really bother me. It might sound slightly crass, but um, maybe that's to do with the slightly unreal feel of to the whole thing and it it, it it does seem at times to be a bit a bit like a pantomime and not quite set in the real world so yeah it didn't really strike a chord that kind of uh, treatment so let's talk about the two main protagonists bobby g and david van day and before we get into the specifics about each of them it felt to me watching it that you can imagine each of them kind of at the end of every take, dusting their hands, feeling assured that they've absolutely demolished the other person in in the film. I mean, Chris, did you, did you get that sensation as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. One hundred percent. And I think that's more the case with David Van Day. We did something uh, at a holiday camp. And, and the thing that really struck me... And there was a couple of celebrity presenters came down from a quiz show. While watching this programme again in 2020. And boxes were part of it. And I remember at the end of it, they all went off to dinner. That I hadn't really noticed in 2002. And they didn't invite me. Is that David Van Day does not have a shred of self-awareness. And I thought, the big mistake. Uh, he, he comes across as arrogant and presumptuous and vain. You know, he was deliberate. I mean, all of these things were obvious then. If people do things like that to me, I pay them about five times as much. It's as simple as that. But that sort of lack of self-awareness is, is plainly his biggest character flaw. And you realise now that the programme and the programme makers are totally feeding off that in an, in, in an incredibly entertaining way. Uh, but it's just a bad idea for people with that sort of uh, personality to get involved in this brand of programme. I would say David Van Day is arguably the person who's most poorly served by the show. But I don't think he necessarily would recognise that in himself. And he makes a lot of strange decisions. I mean, even visually, he seems to cast himself as the baddie, dressed in a roll neck, black sweater and a black leather jacket. Now, black, I always find it's very slimming in, you know, in middle age, you get a bit portly. Although... We all know that black is very slim <laughs> and in middle age you do get a bit portly. But do you think that is the case, Ian? Do you, do you think that David is slightly exploited? Possibly, yes, because I think as well as having a 
astonishing lack of self-awareness. He's very naive and he digs a lot of his own holes, which um, the production team don't really need to do much to tip him into those holes. Um, <laughs> the, things that he, the things that he talks about, even when he's describing himself. And we walked into a room, you know, we look like two old tarts with his, <laughs> our hair, but people would notice uh, us. You kind of recoil from this picture he paints. I mean, if you can't even paint a decent picture of yourself out of your own mouth, then, you know, heaven help anybody else. It's a shame, though, and this is this is partly why I, I, I found this whole thing a bit distressing, because just as I really like Buckfizz, I really like Donna. And they did some great songs. Some of that, that run of singles that they had in, the, in about the space of a year. in the early 80s were fantastic. And then to see those songs sort of reduced to these like third version copies. I, him and, and whoever he fancies hooking up with this week. <laughs> <laughs> It's you know it sucks the the joy out of the songs. I mean, for me, I mean that that kind of sealed the deal with old um, with old Burger Van Den <laughs> to give him his, his unfair nickname. But David, I think watching this, Chris, he I think he gave more to the program makers than Bobby did. We see him reconstructing, taking umbrage at wine coloured shirts, don't we? Or in the <laughs> library pretending to read legal books. And I wonder, is it a reasonable rule of thumb, perhaps, for any pop star? they really should start feeling anxious when a film crew wants to interview them on their stairway in front of a gold disc they were once awarded in the 80s. This is the uh, dollar round which sells buckets loads. That should, that, uh, you know, alarm should have been going off in his head then, shouldn't they? Oh, absolutely. And again, again, that, that, I don't want to labour this point, but it's his lack of self-awareness which, you know, kind of make, means that he, that he falls into that trap. To be fair to him, he does kind of come up with the goods for, for the programme. It, it wouldn't have been as compelling a program if he were not acting up to the camera. I mean, he, he delivers the real play it again, Sam moment of this program where he's outlining his philosophy for his version of Bucks Fizz. And he talks about how he wanted to reboot the old skirt ripping routine for the 1990s. And he informs this with great solemnity that- uh, I, thought, I felt we were in the boob age. So, so you're kind of, he, he, he does give, he, he, does, he does deliver. Ian. Do you remember then there's a sequence in this where David talks of an early meeting with Bobby to, to discuss their union as Bucks Fizz, which happens at the Mitre Hotel in Hampton Court. And David has a one word summary of, of how we characterise this encounter. Do you remember what that word is? Oh, no, I don't. Uh, Chris? Conjugal. It was very relaxed and um, conjugal, as you say. He calls it conjugal. Now, do you think he means convivial? <laughs> this is a good point because I think... Um, this kind of fits in with David. He has a habit of, of, of getting the, his words mangled, doesn't he? He picks the wrong word for, for what he really wants to say, as if he can't quite... He's grasping for some moment of eloquence, but it always just slips out of his hands. Um, it kind of, it's, it's of a piece with the fact that he sounds a bit like Frank Spencer. And so it, it, it all comes together in this, this wonderful, slightly grisly creation. Some of the things he says actually just plainly don't make any sense so when he talks about the fact that um you know he has the, the falling out with bobby and that's it they're out of each other's lives he says we've 
We never even spoke to each other after that. Not even in a polite way. Now, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And there are other things he says which you just think... I think he just heard that phrase on TV once. So he talks about he was sad that Bobby and his... Bobby's partner Heidi didn't attend the court case over the bucks for his name as he wanted an eye. <laughs> They're just very quirky, strange phrase. Um, and do you think, Chris, he thinks, oh, I'm really, oh, I'm lavishing this with texture and, and interesting. And people are looking at me thinking, this sophisticate. What was he doing with this? Thing with Bobby? <laughs> I think, I think, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right, Graham. That, and that sort of alludes to what I was saying before. He, he, he really is delivering but not in the way that he thinks he's delivering. Well, let's talk about Bobby then. And I think this show characterises him as a grafter. Is that, is, what do you think, Ian? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he is presented to us as someone who's, uh, he's a striver, isn't he? He's worked all, all his professional life at um, keeping the Bucks Fizz flame alive, <laughs> even in, 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 in bad times as well as good. With Mike Nolan gone, Bobby was carrying the Bucks Fizz banner alone. His livelihood was in jeopardy. But Bobby takes the whole thing a lot more seriously than David. Um, David has very lofty ambitions. He thinks they could be back in the big time. But Bobby seems to have a better handle on, you know, what kind of prospects Bucks Fizz actually have, which is a cabaret circuit act. But what did, what was your sense of Bobby? I mean, he, I think, for, for you know, for all intents and purposes, broadly speaking, his head is kind of screwed on, isn't it? I mean, it? to be honest, I would commend him for his, for, for his realism. Um, and kind of a sort of clear-eyed vision of, of where Buck's Fizz could exist at that particular point in time. I'm guessing this is just before the time of the big sort of 80s revival festivals and, and that whole circuit. So, so at this point in time, Butlins is much the more realistic prospect for Buck's Fizz than, than David Van Day's you know, vision of, of the boob age. David Van Day is, of course, he's a cuckoo in the nest, and I think... You know, to, although I have some misgivings about how the the show frames him, I'm I don't feel too guilty about laughing at him, and we're we're never laughing with him, but we're laughing at him. I feel a little bit, a little bit, unhappy about how Bobby is portrayed because I think he's got every reason really in to to be upset. It's something he has built and has invested his life in. Should we be thinking he's silly? I mean, are we supposed to think, oh, it's only Buck's fist? How how could you even think that? To Graham, it's only Buck's fizz. I mean, you sound like that judge who thinks that the fizz. You said that the fizz has gone out of the name. This is one of the preeminent pop acts <laughs> of the nineteen eighties. Well, okay, let me follow up on that because I'm putting forward what I think is the program makers kind of remit, and actually, I agree with you. Um, I think Buck's fizz was a decent group, you know, um, and. You know, this is, might seem like a weird comparison, but you know, one can't imagine a program being so tongue-in-cheek. For example, about the breakup of the Beatles, could they? So, why Bucks Fizz? Well, I, I, I wonder if that has something to do with the origins of Bucks Fizz, and that's the Eurovision. Never thought for one moment that we would win it. The fanfare. <laughs> I was absolutely stunned. And I knew that this was going to change my life. Because Bucks Fizz's roots were not in what you might call traditional roots at the top, you know, spending months and years building up a following. But instead, they parachuted in to this event, which they won, and suddenly they were one of the biggest bands around. Their, their, their roots were in something which, for many people, is something that just has no credibility. And so, therefore, they've always had this aura around them. Of, of being perhaps 
not the real thing. I think you're absolutely right, Ian. And, you know, it, they were never, ever going to shake off the whole skirt-ripping routine. I mean, even now, that's what people think of. More people remember the ripping off of the, the skirts than they do the song. When it comes to Buck's Fizz. So, you know, as, uh, despite the fact that they made a whole string of really brilliant pop records, that image is always going to follow them around. At the end of the show, we see the kind of the rival Bucks Fizz franchises. There's Bobby's Bucks Fizz. There's David's Bucks Fizz. Um, Bobby's has one original member. David's has none. Which of the two Bucks Fizzes would you rather see, though, Ian? Bobby, of course. Bobby. And is that just fidelity to Bobby, or is it musicianmanship? What's why would you make that choice? The whole the whole package. I mean, at the end, we are cutting between the two versions of making a minder. Why should I give up a business that I spent six years building up to new heights, in my opinion? That the, the, the faithful, uh, heartwarming version by Bobby and that wretched remake by David to a, a dance beat, which just sounds hideous. Um, yeah, there's no questions for me. Um, it would have to be Bobby. <laughs> oh, well, I'm with Ian. I'm, I'm going to say I'm going to see Bobby's version of Buck's Fizz. It's interesting that we were talking earlier about kind of like how, how this program didn't really take Buck's Fizz as seriously as it would say like the Beatles or, or, or Oasis. And, and that's partly because Buck's Fizz don't have the authenticity or seemingly don't have the authenticity of traditional rock bands. But actually, if it came to a choice between the two, I want the authenticity of, of the original. I want the authenticity of of the man who was there, you know, in the sweatshirt in uh, Eurovision in 1981. We've watched this um, uh, 45-minute documentary, and I think within that we've seen at least four or five iterations of Buck's Fizz, The Fizz, Bobby G's Buck's Fizz. Chris, can, I mean, can you untangle the Buck's Fizz web? How, how, how has the Buck's Fizz story played out in terms of rival bands? I think essentially to simplify matters, there, there are two basically two power blocks within the sort of Bucks Fizz Cold War. There's there's Bobby G's Bucks Fizz, which is the one which owns the trademark. Uh, and then now there is uh, The Fizz, who were previously known as Original Bucks Fizz, and they're briefly known as OBF. Um, and that contains Cheryl, Jay Aston, and Mike. Um, so it's kind, of, it's, it's kind of really intriguing, isn't it, that the three original members aren't allowed to use the name that you would you feel that they have more of a a moral ownership of than than, than maybe bobby does mm. but it's but it's kind of it is it's, it's a as you say it's a very very tangled web and and in fact in 2011 nine years after this documentary was was made and broadcast there was another legal battle over the name of Bucks Fizz. It's, it, it's, it feels extraordinary that the whole feuding has actually lasted longer than than the original band's run of hits last year. I think we should also um, mention what actually happened to the legal dispute that was featured in the programme, because it ends, the point that the programme ends. Um, we don't know. It, it's left uh, hanging slightly, and, and it's suggested that there's going to be some sort of uh, further action taken. Well, it was settled out of court in August 2002, and uh, Mr. Van Day agreed to call his group David Van Day's Box Fizz Show. But, and this won't surprise you at all, he soon got bored of this, <laughs> fell out with the rest of that lineup, and went back to um, being Dollar. 
So um, he disappeared, in, in the grand scheme of things, he actually disappeared from the Bucks Fizz saga fairly quickly and, also, and, and pretty much rapidly as, as he had arrived. And then, as Chris was just saying, it then became a, a, another tangled saga between the uh, original members. As we wrap up, I, I, I do want to kind of... I think Ian has, has been quite unequivocal about really liking... Bucks Fizz. Chris, I get the impression you're very fond as well. I mean, for example, I think The Heart of Stone is a fantastic song. Beneath the wildfire of the moon Love's wings are broken all too soon They were a proper group, weren't they? Oh, 100%. 100%. They had kind of a really kind of rock-solid kind of they had an imperial phase, uh, to use Neil Tennant's sort of uh, brilliant phrase of, of hits from from about eighty one to eighty three, eighty four. I think I think they I think they're a bona fide fantastic pop group. Yeah, they were blessed with a really good producer and writer in those early days. And those hits that they had, they're not just throwaway numbers. They, they really had substance to them and then really well packaged. Generally, how did watching Trouble at the Top, Bucks Fizz making your mind up, fit into your day did it give you a bit of pep or has it left you despondent well if i had to make my mind up graham i would say that overall it uh it was a joy to see despite all of the trauma along the way and chris the same question to you it fitted perfectly into my day it kind of really i i i loved watching it again um and as i mentioned before you you notice things about the characters more than you did 18 years ago I think also it's going to inspire me to dig out more editions of, of Trouble at the Top and programmes from that portfolio because they are really brilliantly made, hugely entertaining and compelling uh, stories about, about, about people and conflict and business. I, I, I think that was a great era of TV. And, and lastly, Chris, how are you finding life in lockdown right now? Uh, I think it's difficult. It is difficult. I'm very lucky in that nobody I know, none of my family or friends have been sort of touched by, by coronavirus. It does feel like your world is smaller and, and, and life just kind of is, is lacking that little, little extra. So, so I'm, I'm finding it difficult. And Ian, what about you? Yeah, I'd agree. It's been tough and it doesn't seem to be getting any easier, I have to say. The longer it goes on, um, it's not going to be something that I think... Uh, well, speaking for myself and generally maybe, that it's, it's going to be easy to get used to in the long term. But also, as with Chris, uh, fortunately, um, nobody close to me has been affected by it. So that's one blessing, I guess. And would it be in poor taste if I, um, I underscored this sequence with now there's days? <laughs> long ago when we were young and free Love happened suddenly And we couldn't see So thank you Ian and Chris for watching Trouble at the Top and thank you for talking to me about it. Now, those days are gone.